1: Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the region. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School of Public Policy. We are the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us, about our degree courses and our short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au. This is a special extra pod. It's an event that was recorded here at the ANU last week and it's part of a series of live panel discussions looking at the issues from the Australian election. It's a live event so the audio isn't up to our usual studio quality but it's a really great discussion and I think you're going to enjoy it. This is the second of four events to be held at ANU looking at the election and if you'd like to register to attend future events go to anu.edu.au forward slash events. First up, you're going to hear from the event's moderator, Catherine McGrath, and she will introduce the panellists, Dr. Liz Allen of the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. She's been on the uh, pod before. Professor Robert Brunegg of Crawford School, who's also been on the pod before. Professor Tony Dryce of the ANU Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research. And Professor Mark Howden of the Climate Change Institute. And if you're hungry for more sizzling election analysis, why not check out our brand new podcast? It's called Mark Kenny's Democracy Sausage. Each Monday, Mark gathers an expert panel to discuss the week's election campaign. You can find links to it in the show notes. It's available on iTunes and Spotify, or go to our website policyforum.net. We'll be back with our regular pod on Friday, which this week looks at the really interesting area of policy communication. And then we're back again with Mark McKinney's pod on Monday. But for now, sit back, put the headphones on and enjoy this great event.
2: I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet the Nangawar people and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. And I extend that acknowledgement to all Indigenous people with us this evening. Good evening and welcome. This is the second event. Now, hands up those who came by last time. Isn't that great? Return mm-hmm. visitors. Well done. Well done. So we are on each week now between now and polling day, which is very, very exciting because there's a lot at stake in this election, but I think a lot of people have been saying in the media and in conversations, no matter where you go, hard to get inspired by the political discussion that's going on, hard to get answers and understanding. So hopefully tonight that will be a great opportunity for us all. Uh, Tonight's topic, again, as Keith said, is wicked problems, domestic policy. Uh, This session is being recorded. You can upload it and you can listen to it later following hashtags um, at AU Join and Aus vote. So you can follow us on Twitter at ANU Events and you can follow me on Twitter too at Kath Grau So I spent a long time covering elections, but these days I don't cover elections at all, but it's an absolute privilege to be here with ANU ac- academics. And the difference between journalists and ANU academics is that effectively academics actually know things. <laughs> So we're going to quiz them tonight on the policies that they do know, because this is what they spend all their time thinking about. So can I introduce, please, Dr. Liz Allen, Professor Bob Brunig, Professor Tony Dryce and Professor Mark Howden to the panel. So we're going to start off with Tony Dryce. Tony is the Professor of Indigenous Policy. He's a Gorilla roy and uraliae um, Uh, Indigenous man from northern New South Wales and southwestern Queensland. Tony's long policy and research career has included time as a Principal Indigenous Research Fellow at the Australian Council of Educational Research, as well as roles with the Queensland Government and Aboriginal Justice Advisory Council, the Australian Indigenous Training Advisory Council and the New South Wales Department of Education and Training. So, Tony, here at the ANU, you're researching policy to do with uh, Indigenous education and Indigenous policy. In terms of this election, what are the main things that you want to share with the audience tonight?
3: Um, firstly, I'll join Kath and Keith in Acknowledging Country and to Elders past, present and emerging, I pay my respects uh, to other Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander people in the room. Um, well done for coming out on such a chilly Canberra evening. Um, I have the great fortune that I get to still live in Brisbane part time and um, I come down to Canberra every week uh, to engage in the ANU community. Um, So in the next few months, I've got to try hard to get here during the week um, as opposed to a beautiful time in Brisbane at at the present time. In terms of the election and to your question, Kath, It is hard to be inspired. It's incredibly difficult, from a First Nations perspective, to be inspired by the current discourse. Um, Whilst there are parts of the public discourse that are encouraging, for example, um, the notion of a voice to the parliament, um, at least one side of um, politics is committed to uh, a process or a look at the process of tr- uh, process of treaty making agreement making makarata meaning healing and truth-telling we what's still elusive in this country of course is a is bipartisan approaches to first Nations affair and it troubles so many First Nations people to have um, our issues like a political football. Um, somewhere, sometime, this country has to grow, so that First Nations issues aren't treated as a political fo- football, and that as a country we can grow to really address uh, what I call what what the importance here is um, working out the difference between substantial issues and substantive issues. Now, when we look at substantial, we can compare each other's budget commitments in terms of programs, but what is a substantive issue, um, which I've not heard be talked about in this election, is what sort of place (coughs) we want to create as a collective people which honours and respects and celebrates um, First Nations people.
2: Tony, thanks. That's a great start. Liz Allen. Uh, Dr Liz Allen is a lecturer with the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. Liz is a highly experienced demographer with an expertise spanning demography, specifically fertility, migration and population change, social trends and population health, and is a very uh, regular commentator across many media platforms, including the ABC. Liz, as you look at the federal election right now, what's your message to voters and people who've come along tonight?
4: So I think we would all agree that immigration has been um, not necessarily at the fore of, of I guess, this election cycle. It's kind of simmering ever ever since time began almost. Um, but we're seeing that, again, immigration is being used much uh, like a political football. Uh, we, we're seeing dog whistling and we're all, very harmful narratives. But what I'd like to say is that... Demography is the story of us all. Demography is about population and population is about people. We all have a stake in this. Now, if we step back and we think about what demography is inherently about, it's about the characteristics of the population, the composition and where we live. What's the present issue facing Australia probably most prominently is an ageing population, why does that matter? Well, it doesn't necessarily matter if we get it right. We're not getting it right. And we're faced with a very real fiscal pressure that will see us perhaps even go backward in terms of our, our well-being. So I would like to see a life course approach, consider from the cradle to the grave, birth to death, a life course approach, at the present, we see enormous disparities with regard to health and education, they're cumulative across the life course. We're not investing in those key areas that consider, that consider take a low socioeconomic status person versus a higher economic status person Over the life course, before a child even enters school, they are incredibly disadvantaged in comparison by sheer fact of access and opportunity to early childhood education, preschool uh, and and the dentist and a whole raft of other health um, uh, indicators. And these disparities increase over the life course. Think about that once they hit the workforce and then as they age. We need to take a step back, and we're not seeing this because of short-termism within government. A cycle is considered now six months, not three years, because we're seeing the cycle of, of political leaders move through so quickly I would like to see a comprehensive life course approach to population policy that, that includes a suite and uh, of, of, of measures that reconnects these disparate um, uh, puzzle pieces that hopefully gets us back on track and our well-being is focused.
2: Liz, thanks for that. And starting off with Liz and Tony it reflects what many of you said in the survey. So when you registered for this event, you had the opportunity to indicate what topics you were interested in. Now, 15% of you rate. Inequality as important topics you wanted to hear about the the. Top topic, though, was energy, energy policy, and uh, after inequality was economy, the economy. So the next two speakers we're going to introduce really talk about both of those topics, and I think the election campaign reflects the need. People want to talk about climate policy and energy policy. So Mark Harden, Professor Mark Harden, is a global expert on climate science and the director of the Climate Change Institute at the ANU. Mark is also the vice chair of the UN's intergovernmental panel on climate change and sits on the Australian National Climate Climate Science Advisory Committee. So when the government gets advice from its public servants on this issue, the public servants have actually been informed by Mark, which is great. So fabulous to have him here. Mark, for voters now, people in the audience, what what are you making of the campaign discussion on climate change?
5: Not a great deal. <laughs> so when we, when we look at the science, which are the, the key indicators of climate change Uh, we see change and it's all getting worse. So the key indicators are our greenhouse gas emissions. We're producing 40 billion tonnes a year at the moment. Um, That's pushing carbon dioxide levels and other greenhouse gases to record levels in the atmosphere. That's warming the earth, warming the oceans. It's acidifying the oceans. It's increasing our extreme events uh, and it's impacting on human and natural systems. And that's happening right now we don't seem to have got the fact that this is not a good look for Australia, it's not a good look for the world. It's going to have huge impacts in human terms, in economic terms and in environmental terms. But in spite of that, we're doing an incredibly good job of increasing our greenhouse gas emissions, not reducing them as the Paris Agreement would have us do. So last year we emitted uh, 2.7% more greenhouse gas emissions than the previous year. In Australia, we emitted 2.3% more greenhouse gas emissions than the previous year, last financial year. We actually have to turn that around and instead of increasing those emissions, reduce them if we're to come anywhere close to the Paris Agreement targets of 1.5 or 2 degrees. The 1.5 is the aspirational target. The 2.5 or keeping below 2, um, two is, is the, the, the main target. If we don't, the future impacts on Australia, as I said, are really significant, You know, just examples being the Great Barrier Reef, You know, potentially um, getting... Uh, irreversibly damaged over the next several decades, amongst many, many other things. Australians get this. Australians know in their hearts and in their guts that this is a big issue. And when we look at the surveys of Australian public opinion, up to 90% of Australians want more action on climate change. They want governments to take action and put in place effective policies that reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, and they want governments to put in place policies that adapt to the changes that we're already seeing and those changes which are coming down the track at us and they're not getting it and they want more
2: thanks, Mark, and then it gets to economics too, Professor Bob Brunig. Economics is rated uh, equally up there with climate change in terms of people 's concerns. when we talk about climate change, the questions are often about the cost of that uh, so let 's introduce Professor Robert Brunig is the Director of the ANU Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Uh, Bob is one of australia 's leading public policy economists and is an expert on the Australian tax and transfer system. Special research areas include uh, childcare in the news this week with the new ALP policy announced, women's labour supply and immigration. Now, Bob, in terms of the economics, where do we stand in terms of what people make of the economic debate around climate change in the election campaign right now?
6: So maybe I'll say two things, uh, Catherine. The first is that um, I think a lot of the economic debate has been around tax. Um, and both parties like to use the word tax reform, but I think as you listen to the debate, I, I guess one message I would send to you is neither party is proposing tax reform, right? Both parties are tinkering with elements of the tax system without any kind of comprehensive reform, without any kind of system-wide thinking. Um, so I guess as you think about tax policies, that, that's one thing I would leave you with. The second thing, and I'll get to Catherine's question about economics and climate policy, and and economists as the ASX, as large companies in Australia, are incredibly concerned about climate change because it presents an enormous risk to business, right? And and in many ways, we might get the solution from business before we get it from government, but that's another topic. But I, I sense in general with policies, and I see this with economic policies, I see this with social policies, we have this tendency to sort of think empathy plus money equals success. So if I can just kind of get people concerned about it and then maybe throw some money at it, I've solved the problem, right? And so last week we saw that that's actually not true, right? So we saw we've thrown millions of dollars at the Marie Darling Basin and water flows are lower, not higher, right? Um, And I think a lot of people thought that problem was done and dusted because they saw a chunk of money fly at it, right? And if we look at, you know, how did we solve drunk driving in the Western world, right? Drunk driving used to be a huge public health problem everybody knew it was a problem everybody knew drunk driving was bad they did it anyway it's just like global warming it's exactly the same thing right when did they stop doing it when we created incentives to not do it right we increased the penalties for drunk driving and and education was good the, the education about drunk driving made people willing to accept the penalties but you've got to have some incentives right and I think the education around global warming the you know the scary figures that you've cited mark that we hear about we're now educated but now we need some incentives, right, that are going to help change our behaviour. And we're ready for it. People want it, I agree. So,
2: so this week in the news, uh, there's been Labour's childcare policy. Uh, <laughs> There has been uh, One Nation, the decision of the number two on the Queensland Senate ticket, uh, Steve Dixon, to step down. Uh, Pauline Hanson apparently is on uh, current affair tonight, um, according to media reports this afternoon, uh, in tears, talking about uh, the loss of several of her people. Um, but a lot of, a lot of discussion about costing climate policy. So Labor obviously has a stronger climate policy mark, than the coalition going to the election. But the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is saying often, what's it going to cost, Bill Shorten? Now, isn't he right to say that and how much is it going to cost?
5: (coughs) The flip side of that is what does it cost if we don't do anything about it and if we don't take leadership internationally... Um, and other countries say, well, if you're the one of the world's biggest polluters per capita and you're not, not taking action, why should we in Vanuatu or someplace like that? And so, so there are costs of not doing anything. In terms of costs of doing things, what we've actually seen over the last decades is that we've grossly overstated the costs of action on climate change. So, for example, renewables... Every time the International Energy Agency projects um, adoption and costs of renewable energies, um, it drops below that that cost and it increases the amount of installed power every year on year on year. And so one of the things I think here is that um, getting... uh, ..when you're dealing with really systemic changes, such as dealing with climate change properly would be, is that we can't really cost that. We can have a bit of a stab at what it might cost... We often don't do the other side of it. What's the benefit of doing it? So we don't get a good um, cost-benefit analysis. So we don't, you know, we have a asymmetrical narrative there. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to almost like a leap of faith. Just like with the NBN, the the benefits of the NBN was, uh, you know, was unclear, but the costs of the NBN were relatively clear. You know, the fibre to the home, and uh, and we squibbed it. Instead of actually saying, yes, we can't exactly cost this, but it's a really good thing to do, and we know deep down that it's a good thing to do because it future prepares us for the future, we, we scribbed it on the basis of the finances, on the economics. And it's the same with climate change, is that when, once we actually start to do this, we'll find that there's huge amounts of opportunity in this space. It's not all doom and gloom. There's lots of opportunity to actually make really good money, um, to actually have better lives, healthier lives, more sustainable lives... Um, if we actually start taking action. So I I actually think the argument about trying to do economic costing is actually a furphy, and we should actually push against it.
2: Okay, and I'll ask Bob about economic costing in a minute, but let's ask the or just a show of hands, hands up the people who would vote in this election according to climate change policy. That's a large number. How many of you feel you understand the economic argument associated with... Yeah, so... Yeah, not many people, really. So, Mark, do you think, is it... This is just one question. We'll go to the audience shortly. Community expectations or, or voter expectations and policy work and government action are not in step. So is it still going to be many electoral cycles before they come into step?
5: I think what Australians are after is a bit of leadership <clears throat> on this topic. And, and once, once we actually have um, a, a clear narrative, a clear rationale, and I think the rationale is there and we, we understand it, we haven't got a clear narrative about how government can actually step in and help um, the process of moving Australia ahead. And, and, and until we have that, which is then translated into relatively clear uh, policy uh, arrangements... Uh, we won't, won't really be able to sign on and say, yeah, this is something we want to get behind. But but most people want something. They just haven't got it there yet, so they don't really know what it is. And so so I think we actually have mm. to take the first step mm. and then we'll actually start to get public opinion swaying behind.
2: Liz it. and Tony both want to jump in, so let's yeah. start with Liz and then Tony.
4: And I think the the <coughs> thing that is glaringly missing from this conversation about climate is the impacts that it has on, on, on our lives, on individuals. And if we look at the geography of Australia and if we look at how climate will impact on particular areas, think uh, Western Sydney um, in particular, let's focus on that, the areas that experience the, the highest heat um, and, and where the, the heat is, is, is set to increase quite, quite substantially is in an area where people are uh, high represented among uh, lower socioeconomic groups. So we're going to see housing and people um, unable to accommodate on an individual level. It will cause um, serious health impacts, particularly uh, as the frequency of of, um, major weather events increases, even just um, days of, of prolonged heat that we're not getting respite overnight. Uh, for an ageing population that's incredibly bad, we will see deaths increase due to climate issues. And if we can't have a conversation about that, um, I don't don't know how we're going to get a leadership um, that's going to make earnest reform in this regard. Tony?
2: I think um,
3: whilst a, a kind of macro figure of cost or price hasn't been established and even if it were, it would be contentious. Mm. We do know the cost as measured in other ways so far. And let's take a First Nations perspective. Mm. Let's look to the rivers of the Darling, literally empty. Mm. People boiling water, boil water for drink or somehow importing it, buying it in. Let's look at the cost to the natural environment, including animals, communities where people are having to leave water out for emus, kangaroo and other totems. Let's look at the potential cost to the Torres Strait in terms of rising sea levels, not to mention the cost to the Great Barrier Reef. Incidentally, our people are older than the Great Barrier Reef. So. There is a cost being paid now, and we all know, we see it in terms of uh, bushfires, in terms of extreme heat, as Liz touched on. Um, I come back to an earlier point I made earlier about us being aware both to substantial policy issues and substantive policy issues. So whilst in a substantial sense, we may not have the great economic figure on it, we know that, as Mark says, the cost of inaction is extraordinary. Um, and we are to our future generations, quite simply.
2: Tony, thank you. Bob, the economics.
3: So Mark,
6: you've got to sell harder, man. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the leap of faith thing is not going to get me there. I don't need a leap of faith to get there. I mean, we have really good estimates of the cost of climate change, right? And, and, and they're highly variable. Why are they highly variable? Because there's a lot of uncertainty. But if you take some kind of midpoint of those estimates, you get projecting out 20, 30 years, you get potentially 5% of GDP costs, 3 to 5% of GDP. Okay. So that's not a huge, that's actually not a huge amount. And that, you know, you can take different costs to try to take into account. It's hard to assign monetary values to some of the things that that Tony's mentioned, but, but there's some attempt to do that. You can try to look at how much people are willing to effort they go to to preserve species and things. But, but, but anyway, so I, I actually think we have costs. And I, and I think that, you know, it, it's like, and even if you think there's some doubt about whether climate change is happening or not, it doesn't even matter, right? You should do this as an insurance policy against the future, right? We, you know, you buy insurance in case your house burns down. You don't think your house is going to burn down, but you wouldn't say, well, I'm going to take a leap of faith. And, and not buy insurance, right? You, you buy the insurance to protect your house. So kind of, you don't have to be, you, you can just be pretty cold hearted about this, right? And, and then the key is to put in place policies that you can adjust as new information comes in. So as we go forward, new information will come in about whether climate change is worse than we thought or better than we thought. And if you haven't set a place of policies like a carbon tax, then you can increase that or decrease that as you get new information. Um, and I don't know, you people who think you're going to vote on climate change, I don't know who you're going to vote for. Uh, so, so I just said something really simple that should be super bipartisan and none of the parties, I think, as far as I can tell, would have that as their position. So yeah. good luck. So there's so many uh, issues that people are interested in. You'll have a
2: chance to um, get questions from the floor as well. But I want to just drill down on a few of the policy a bit of the policy expertise we have right here on some important issues that I know people want to think about. So let's look at the childcare policy that Labor announced. Um, when <laughs> people say um, childcare workers aren't paid enough, the costs of going to childcare are incredibly high for so all of those uh, young families who are having those huge costs. Not only are they facing high mortgages, but incredibly crippling uh, costs for childcare. So Wouldn't it then be a good thing if Labor says we're going to cap that, we're going to give free childcare to people under a certain threshold so low-income owners would get access to free childcare and we would control the pricing? Isn't that a good thing?
6: No. Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm happy to take a swing at that. So first, you know, so I've written quite a bit about childcare, as Catherine has referred to, Um, and it's always good to sort of set the scene of, of what you think you're you know, you're talking about. And, and I guess when we think about childcare, there's two things that we're talking about that you have to keep in mind. So one of them is the value of early childhood education, which has already been mentioned. And, and there's a lot of international evidence that says early childhood education is important. and It's particularly important for disadvantaged kids. So, so that's one way we want to think about childcare. The second way we want to think about childcare is we want to put in place the conditions that allow for gender equality in our society. And one of those things is giving men and women equal access to the workplace, and so childcare has an important role to play. So right away, you've got a conflict between those two things, right? Because the, the, the childhood education aspect would say, we should spend as much money as we possibly can on kids. The gender equality thing should say, well, we should have as cheap a childcare as possible so as many people could work as possible. So in, in the real world, you know, there are no perfect policies. I think this is a good example of where we just face some basic trade-offs, right? So I think, you know, and, and there's kind of two paths. We're not on TV, so we can actually talk about things deeply a little bit. Is that right, Catherine? Well, we're the, gonna be, this I, is gonna I, be a later I,
2: podcast. I, I okay. think. Uh, people I, might fast I, forward through this but if it's I, boring.
6: I, 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 I promise I won't right. talk too long, Catherine, but this <laughs> is such a, I love this topic, and, and, and I, and, and, you know, so there's kind of two things you could think about doing with childcare. Like, one thing you could think about doing is you could think about bringing it into the public education system. So all the arguments that we have of why we deliver public education for five-year-olds apply to three-year-olds. There's no reason they shouldn't. And countries like France have gone down that road. Um, with not perhaps terribly great success, we could talk about that too. But the, the second option is to do what Australia does, right? And what Australia does is say pretty much let the private market provide and remember, the private market is not just for-profit providers, also a lot of community organizations and, and and small child care centers. And 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 then let's give people money, they can participate in the market. That's a very Australian solution. That's how we do superannuation, that's how we do healthcare. A lot of our best policies have a hybrid where we kind of combine the market along with, along with some government support. The advantage of, of what we do in Australia is it presents a huge diversity of options to people. So... If you live in an urban area in Australia, which the vast majority of Australians do, you have incredible options in childcare, much more than you do in kindergarten. I was going to
2: jump in, Bob, because um, it's also incredibly expensive. It is incredibly expensive. So huge so, money. But here's a question, because in this election campaign, this is a really, really big question for people, because on the face of it, what Labor is offering will mean cheaper childcare for a lot of people.
6: So so, so I think making childcare for cheaper for people is, is fine. What I worry about is when Labor says... We're going to go in and, and set prices in markets because in, and there's one thing we've learned in 80 years all around the world. When governments set prices, it's a disaster.
2: And you might have followed that Bill Shorten today um, ruled out applying this to aged care because the first thing that happened after the child care announcement was the aged care workers
6: said, of course, what about us? Predictably, right. And so we don't want to go in and fix prices. So if we give subsidies, some of that's going to pass through to prices. It's going to end up being expensive. I'm not sure it's more expensive than kindergarten, but... It is going to be expensive. And I think whatever we can do to help families get access to that, particularly at lower income levels, is good. So,
2: yeah. Tony?
3: I think the discussion's focused on, obviously, a critical part of childcare policy, namely that it's affordable for parents and for families. But there's also another voice that is uh, equally important, and that is the profession. Um, And early childhood educators and what's been argued is that they are seriously underpaid and they are (laughs) Um, it's incredible that we uh, as a society hand over the most precious thing that we have and expect people to provide that care at rates of pay that are just so significantly lower and worse than we see in other parts of the education system. So perhaps one of the attractions for the argument for state-based provision to kick in earlier uh, than five-year-olds is to address this gross inequity in terms of the rate of pay Uh, for early childhood educators.
2: Thanks, Tegra. Liz, just very briefly, because I want to move on to population (laughs) policy with you.
4: If we look at um, uh, large nationally representative survey data, we see that over the life course, people adjust their intentions and their desires about how many children they want to have, almost by half, right? So there are barriers... Getting in the way of people realizing couples and families realizing their their hope for a family, and part of that is childcare and and gender issues. Um, childcare would certainly be part of a comprehensive. Um, policy approach in terms of population policy because of the issues of gender and the issues of um, affordability and accessibility um, for for children to gain a good solid start in life Um, and it frightens me that we we hear quite prominent voices saying well I don't have a child or I've had my children and I've paid for my children, why is this going to be... Um, uh, why am I paying for other people's children? They are literally the future of this country. They will be the carers as we grow old and frail and... and and wait and and play with balloons in in the aged care sector. So I think that's an important thing to consider. They are the workforce of the future.
2: And Liz, you touched there on population policy because one of the other big issues of this election campaign is population policy Mm. and related issues to that, immigration, which is not always a part of population policy but seems to be currently... So what uh, the coalition announced a population policy in the last few weeks, you've had a look at it. Uh, What is your view on that? And what is, um, you know, obviously, this is not a not a a venue to be, uh, you know, picking sides. And so it's really important because people in this audience can have all sorts of views. But (laughs) you are a demographer. What do you have to say about that?
4: So in Australia, we have not had a population policy in, in earnest for some time. Not since kind of the post-war, we populate or perish. Okay, and we had real life targets of of both fertility, so births, and and um, and immigration. At present, we have what would be considered a quasi-population policy in terms of our immigration intake. So how does a population change? We change from natural increase and from from migration. So natural increase is the balance of of births minus deaths um, and immigration is a net, people coming versus people leaving. Now, we've got a cap. Historically, we've had a cap. It's sat at 190,000. Permanent migration, um, that is people being issued um, permanency in the country. Side point, most um, permanent um, applications are granted um, to people already in the country. So there are elements of a temporary um, population um, that we need to consider as well. In terms of the population policy, we have never been successful in recent time at getting population policy right. The most recent experience in Australia is from 2011 and we had a year-long inquiry where we had people um, in town halls um, being consulted by government. We had many academics um, provide for, uh, from a range of disciplines providing... Enormous insight into what we needed as a country. There were public um, submissions made and the like. What happened? This is under the Labor, previous Labor government. Nothing. There were, fant- you know, a, a wad of documents, uh, you know, that could uh, prop up your lap, your your computer screen on your desk, should you need to. They, they're that big, um, and and they came to nothing. There were grand statements about. Um, infrastructure and the like, nothing happened. We see inaction over and over again. Why? Because it requires widespread reform. We're not keen on reform in Australia because we require at least a 20-year a period to get these investments done right, to get the infrastructure flowing. We've had at a state and territory level, as well as a, a federal level, woeful uh, investment in our future, in us, in, in, our, in our vital, essential infrastructure. And we're literally paying for the failure now. And we're blaming it on who? Immigration. We're blaming it on the other. Recent immigration is predominantly from India and China, so there are apparent differences. And so it's easier to point the finger and blame it on the other. And we see all layers of the political spectrum blame the other, but they are literally keeping Australia, ship Australia afloat. Without immigration, without the right immigration intake, we are going to tank, right? Economically, we're going to tank. It will happen. It'll be a slow tanking, but it'll happen. What concerns me most about the current... So, in terms of the the population policy, it's, it's totally inadequate and it is all for show. It is a glossy 40-page document that considers immigration and nothing more than that. The cap will not create a substantive change because we've seen more um, migrants being forced onto uh, a bit of a, a limbo status in terms of bridging visas it's it's terrible so and listen
2: in in one sense you've got um a choice between you know what is put up as a a more open approach to Migration and social policy in a less open approach and some argument that perhaps the coalition is less open to migration because of its criticism. But here's the rub. Labor hasn't done a good job either. No. So it's not a case of Labor policies are great on this if that's what you support or coalition policies are great if that's what you support. Because many of the problems that New South Wales faces right now are a direct result of underfunding through the Bob Carr years as New South Wales Premier where nothing was spent on infrastructure.
4: No, and Carr (laughs) famously came out. And said no, we're not going to fund this infrastructure, mm-hmm. and and we're, we're, we're seeing the chaos at the moment. So the questions for voters. So
2: what, to, what are people to make of it then? If they're thinking about this now and wondering, they're hearing different views. Uh, the coalition has capped uh, this week the rate of refugees, so it will be yep. lower. There'll be about a ten thousand gap between the number of refugee of, of humanitarian visas that will be granted under a coalition government as opposed to a Labor government. But what, what should people think?
4: I think I, I, would, I would encourage more of a, of a people activism here and that is that we demand more from our leaders. We require leadership. We, we will not... I think we need to, to hold our politicians to account and not allow dog whistling... Racial, race-based dog whistling to come into these debates and we talk about our future and our future requires immigration. It's just what level of immigration is right and we know from the available research that between 160,000 and 220,000 is about the sweet spot for, for, um, for permanent migration intake. At the moment, we're relying on students... To, to keep our economy void, we have to be cognizant of that. And, and the, my concern is that we're, we're creating uh, a white Australia policy across the board that all parties uh, are allowing by kind of looking away or actually coming out and saying things like referring to migrants as imports and accusing migrants about uh, uh, to, um, accusing migrants for you know, um, inf- um, housing and affordability and things like that, and we 've got to move away from that, and rather have a discussion about our future, which includes climate, which includes a discussion about first Nations people, and the basis of the economy is the population. We just need to move beyond the the, the hate based talk. And immigration is not synonymous with population. They're very separate things.
2: So we'd like to go to questions very soon. But before we do, I'm going to ask Tony a question. And while we're doing that, have a think about your questions so we can go straight to him. We've got some of the questions that you put on the online survey as well. Tony, for this election... Uh, the question of an Indigenous voice to parliament, what are the choices as you see it? Uh, I mean, a lot of change during the last term in that the voice to parliament began then. There was consultation around Australia, the Uluru Statement, and suddenly this issue was on the agenda. So there has been great movement in this term, but now what's the choice?
3: OK, so we go to the Coalition first um, after the Uluru Statement came out Uh the the coalition government were very quick out of the blocks to say no. Um, that a voice, one, they kind of mischievously um, represented the, um, the the goal of a voice to parliament, but rather put it out there as a, a voice within parliament, um, which was not the case. We're not talking about a third chamber. We're talking about an advisory mechanism that's protected in the constitution. Because we've had the legislative based ones before and they come and go. Uh, the country struggled with a national voice for 40 odd years now. And there have been various uh, iterations, including ATSIC. Mm-hmm. Um, but the coalition were very quick out of the blocks to say no and also argued that, well, how can we have a body that only includes Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, which kind of overlooked the whole point of the uh, exercise. Um, Now, more recently, however, as we saw in the federal budget, the Coalition has committed $7.3 million to to a co-design process around constitutional recognition and a voice to parliament. So it's puzzling. Um, It was kind of rejected, but we will make this allocation for some co-design work, so I'm not sure what's in their mind. In terms of the Labor side of of politics, um, Labor have committed initially to a
0: legislative-based voice,
3: in the first term of government where they elected uh, to, uh, to, to enshrine a voice um, within the constitution. Um, what worries me in a public policy sense, because I mean it's up for the politicians to sort out their various views, but what worries me in a public policy sense is the design work around that voice. I haven't seen that kind of being discussed uh, in terms of how it operates, how it's supported, how uh, public policy processes within the nation have to change to accommodate it in terms of timelines, in terms of um, impact assessments, uh, these sorts of things. Because unless you've got that supporting kind of apparatus and infrastructure around a voice, it will be just a a kind of a mouthpiece without a body. Um, And that strikes me as being problematic. So, anyhow, we'll see in terms of um, the election outcome. uh, Were um, either side to win, um, seemingly there's got to be some design work around it.
2: So that leads us, I think, to those two really big questions that also voters are facing, and that is looking at the climate change policies on offer and looking at the tax policies. So we'll come back to both of those, because a lot of the questions from the audience might really go to that. But we'll park those two, and we'll get ready at the end, too, if we haven't addressed it, to get Mark and Bob to answer those. So um, we've got microphones around, two microphones. So just hands up if you've got a question, and we'll start. To, great. So we might start over here, and then over here. So we'll get those two. Terrific. And then here. Great. So...
4: While we're waiting, if I can yeah. just add to, to what Tony said. Yeah. In Australia, we 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 can't or we have trouble facing the notion that First Nations uh, versus non-Indigenous Australians, that gap is due to discrimination and we have to invest better in, in breaking down that barrier of discrimination. And I think that we need to listen to First Nations Australians and listen to what they require because until now, we've just been listening to the white fellas and they've not got it right. So I think it's, it's time to, to really put it back in, in the hands of First Nations people. That's great,
2: thanks. Um, over here. Yeah.
0: Um, hi, thank you. I'm just wondering what you see is the biggest barrier to implementing um, real climate change policy in Australia? Great. And before we go
2: to that, I was going to to take two questions back to back. I should just say too, um, when uh, we're having questions, that's great. But if you're a candidate at all in this campaign, Mm. please don't ask a question because we'd hate to have to say we can't answer it. So I'll just let you know in advance. Um, Feel free to chat outside after if you like. Um, Great. And over here. Yeah.
5: Um, Yeah. Just following up on the Indigenous recognition point.
2: I've
5: being curious and not to disrespect the process that led to the Uluru Statement but I've been curious why a option similar to New Zealand wasn't put forth that we actually have Aboriginal people represented in Parliament at a higher level with a specific process that allows that. Now I know that takes a probably a longer process of the constitutional change but given the way our parliaments have been formed, balance of power seems to have been probably the most powerful influence for change. And I'm wondering why that wasn't put forth okay, as an option, we'll even that. as a way of a harder option than the one that's been presented, which seems to be quite polite.
2: OK, thanks so much for the question. Now we'll go first of all to barriers to climate change. Just quickly, if everyone wants to have a stab, Mark, let's start with you. Uh,
5: Look, I I actually think it's a really interesting question Mm. and uh, different people have different views on this one. My my view is that uh, it's fundamentally a question of political will. Um, The the will of the people is actually very clear. Um, Lowy Institute, up to 90% of Australians want more action. If this was any other topic, we we would see politicians racing to actually put in place policies. The fact that we don't is is largely because we have a huge issue with um, incumbency is that um, politicians and various uh, businesses are locked into the way that things are, not the way things could be. And, and that incumbency means that they actually have the political power and the ear uh, within the political system. And, and so that blocks out uh, the, the voices of the future, which include the voices of youth, uh, who have a legitimate uh, view that their um, power relationships uh, are being swamped by the existing incumbents. And until we start to move uh, those power relationships, we, we're going to have trouble uh, in terms of overcoming that barrier. There are other things. You know, there is legitimate uncertainty about um, aspects of not so much the climate change itself. You know, there's always science uncertainty. Legitimate uncertainty or, or different perspectives on what is the best route to take for emission reductions, you know, do we go down the hydrogen economy route? Uh, you know, do we push for electric vehicles? Do we, you know, do snowy two, etc. Um, and and those are legitimate topics for political discussion, I think. Um, but that's divorcing it from the science. I, I think we need to start, you know, separating out the information types, the the scientific information types, and the legitimate economic and social issues to do with policy. So I think that's uncertainty is one of the key things. And the other one is we really haven't been smart in putting together um, better options for people. So, for example, if you could buy a car, an EV, with um, zero emissions and really cheap to run um, and it costs the same as a petrol car, it would be a no-brainer. People would mm. be grabbing that in preference to a petrol-driven car, you know, right you know, any time, particularly if it had sufficient range and we had electrical fuel refueling stations, you know, sorted out. And, and that sort of lack of putting in place better options is systemic and it goes back decades. And we, we had, um, uh, we, we've blown options that we've actually had in the past in Australia and we've, we've sold the IP overseas and various other things. And we could have actually been making really great money out of climate change. We could have actually been a clean, green, a high-tech, high-employment economy based on climate change. And because of those political asymmetries, we
2: haven't done it. Thanks, Mark. I'll just Because we've got a lot more to talk about. We'll just get the panel just very, very quickly because we'll get up to the Indigenous question too. So just quickly some thoughts on that point.
4: So the other thing too, as, as Mark has clearly said, the, if we look at the general um, overview of, of uh, popular opinion, people are, are all in, in agreement that change should be created. Change is hard. Change needs to be managed and that's something that we we confront, I think, in, in all the issues, definitely in my my policy interest, um, the area of my interest is, is change is frightening. And if we look at voters, uh, there is a certain um, uh, strength in appealing to foreign incumbency to an ageing vote. Why? Because they're, they're, they're a good block of, of voters to, to aim for. And on climate change, if we were to look at um, concerns about climate change across the life course, across ages, we see that younger people are most wanting um, change, and it declines over over the, the age distribution. So there's your answer there. It is it, it is favourable not to go there, and change is hard. Yes,
2: Thanks, just start quickly, Bob, and then get to Tony.
6: Yeah, at the risk of saying something slightly uh, provocative, uh, maybe picking up on Liz's point, is I, I don't think you can let Australian voters off the hook. I don't think they have the courage mm. of their convictions. Yeah. And we saw this with the carbon tax and we saw this with the resource rent tax. These were two really good policies, hard to find economists that didn't like them. Um, whatever party puts them in place, the other party runs on a campaign that they're going to undo them. Doing something about climate change is going to cause a little bit of discomfort for mm. people. And Australians are
1: so comfortable.
6: Life is so good in Australia, right? I moved here 21 years ago. I would never leave. It's heaven on earth. And, and, and we're all so comfortable. And if our, if our little comfort gets disrupted, then another political party says, oh, vote for me, and I'll remove that discomfort. And bang, they move, right? Oh, yeah. So it's got to be pi- bipartisan, yep. this leadership. And it's got to be accompanied by, <clears throat> by education and then, and then by compensation. For people at the bottom of the income distribution, people who are
2: who are losing out have to be addressed in the policy. So, mm. so Tony, can I'll we get you add. address both? Yeah, yep. yep. I'll,
3: I'll I'll go to the your question about barriers first. I think um, the 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 single biggest one uh, has been vested interests. Mm. Um, Australia is a resource Tony, intensive um, country, and with very very powerful and vested interests. Um, it's interesting when you look now at 2019, now cast your mind back to um, the election of the Abbott government and the very successful, if you were to measured it in political terms, the very successful scare campaign. Your electricity bills are going to go up. Even a leg of lamb was going to go up. Um, so everything was going to go up. Um, Now, when the carbon tax was phased out, (coughs) after its very short life, my electricity bill has not gone down. Has anyone else's? (laughs) Um, So I think, A, people have caught on to that, and B, the voices are different now. Um, Where for too long people saw it as kind of a left wing, you know, Mm. Um, Greeny issue. Now you've got the Reserve Bank of Australia for God's sake talking about it. Perhaps one of the most conservative institutions in this country. So it's now no longer this kind of radical uh, lefty out there idea. Now should I come to this one? Now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a good question. Um, I'd say two things. One, comparing Australia and New Zealand um, is problematic the First Nations stories are radically different. Um, So whilst there are other models in colonised worlds, you know, be it Canada, United States, which are potentially instructive, I think Australia does have to devise something that's uniquely us. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for that is we're a nation, when you look at the Australian continent, you're talking 65,000 years at least of a couple of hundred... First Nations, with different languages, law, traditions, um, etc. So what's tended to happen in a First Nations sense in Australia is more a collective approach. So if you look at, for example, the idea of quotas in the parliament, that's probably unlikely to satisfy how our people view our collective kind of decision-making and, and consultative arrangements. So you know, ATSIC, for all its failures, um, it was still very successful in a, at a regional council level because it was more accommodating of kind of Indigenous governance mechanisms. So I'm not quite sure the kind of quota idea uh, is likely to satisfy that kind of preference yeah. for collective decision-making. One other very quick point when the voice did come up, you, the then Prime Minister, because we go through them now, um, the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, made the point that, oh, well, we've got Ken and Linda and Pat in the, in the Parliament. You know, that's our voice. Well, from a First Nations perspective, it's not. And that, that's no disrespect to those individuals. Um, I know per, two of them personally, and they're very, very good people. But... Um, If you would ask them, do you speak for Indigenous Australia? And if they would answer yes, then I don't think they would. You know, our mob would scream them down. (laughs) Because they don't. We've never... You look at the Indigenous governance arrangements. We've never had kings, queens, chiefs. Um, It was flatter. Much flatter. So... Um, there's still those preferences for kind of collective decision-making.
2: And it also they were voted as, as MPs for electorates and their duties right. are to the yeah, entire that's electorate. Precisely. Anyway, great. Yeah. Next question was here. Thank you. And then we'll do those two there if we can with two questions. Thanks.
0: Thank you. It's a fascinating um, series of issues that you're putting forward. Um, I am not one of those Australians who's really comfortable and I'd really like you to see how you can improve my discomfort by thinking about (laughs) the fact that we make comments such as, the economy depends on population. And my understanding is actually, the economy is based on a healthy environment. And yet I hear the constant paradigm of continuous growth, even exponential growth. How do you reconcile continuous growth, a healthy environment, climate change, and a sustainable economy? Because I, don't, I find this causes me a lot of angst. It's a great Can question. Can you dispel my
2: disclosure? And we'll just get the end question here on the end of that row mm-hmm. as well. And we'll get, well, it's a great question for the panel. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I wanted to ask about Newstart. Everybody from John Howard on now says that Newstart is too low. Mm-hmm. To my mind, it's so low that it's entrenching people in poverty. And it's actually acting as a barrier to them moving into meaningful activity. Why can't we get at least one of the parties to say that they're going to do something about it?
2: Right. Good. So good question. So economic growth, environment, uh, sustainability, mm. they're important questions, yet those policies are not integrated around various areas. So let's, yeah. let's start with our economist. Come on, Bob, you start.
6: So I, um, <laughs> so I don't think you should... You've got to put a value in there. No, I, don't I don't think, think don't you don't should worry you. too much about that. Um, I think that people think of economic growth as being something about where you're like digging up something from the ground and having an industry that pollutes a bunch of stuff. But that's not what economic growth looks like in twenty nineteen, right? The vast majority of economic growth is in services. And a lot of these services don't don't contribute to pollution at all. The the key question is getting the prices right, is is how you have to balance these two things, right? So we need to make people pay more for polluting activities, which will make them undertake less of them and switch to less polluting activities. So I think you can very easily integrate these two things. So now now whether we do that well in policy or not, I think is a separate question. Mark? Uh, I, I'm
5: surprised that I find myself agreeing with Bob on this one. <laughs> no, look, uh, it, it, it is fundamentally about um, putting in place effective policies, mm. um, but both the negative and, and the positive policies. So ones that, you know, encourage, Beneficial behaviours as well as the opposite, um, and and so so I think that's right. Um, I, I have a, a view that the environment actually does matter, and so it's not all going to be you know resolved if we let the market rip. Um, that we have historically in Australia had a nice sort of balance between you know market based forces and and longer term sustainability sort of agendas and issues, social and others, and. Uh, and to some extent, we've left that behind, and I think we perhaps need to recover that hybrid that we used to have, which looked after um, current people, looked after future generations, but also gave us good standards of living.
2: Well, that goes to one of the questions here. That Elise Howard is Elise in the is today? Elise, Elise, hello, Elise. Your question, excellent. Well, <laughs> do you want to actually? You can do your own question. Elise about inequality.
0: Thank you, Elise.
2: The online system works. Welcome. <laughs>
0: Thanks, thanks for picking my question. Um, so my question, um, I guess it's about that incentives thing. So the there's really good research around that shows that inequality harms us all, it that it leads to um, you know, poorer health, uh, greater crime, higher rates of teenage pregnancy. Um, I can't remember the list, but there's a whole range of indicators um, that affect everybody. When inequality is high, and I, I, I just never hear about it as part of the conversation, and I'm wondering why. Why? Why isn't this research out there? Why doesn't anyone uh, talk about it?
2: That's a good question, and we'll throw in New Start as an issue mm. to the answers as well. So can I ask
6: there. them a question?
4: Can we come
2: back?
6: Yeah, to okay. okay. <laughs>
4: <laughs> part of the answer to your question is where is the research? It's there. So there is, uh, you know, an enormous body of evidence um, that shows not only the problem of inequality but what perhaps works at, at, at countering it and redressing and it. Um, I'm a teen mum um, and I'll always be a teen mum even though I'm not a teen <laughs> and that's because it, ca- it stays with you. Um, I'm from a dis- disadvantaged background. Um, and I totally understand what, the, what it feels like to, to have to endure um, poverty because of a system that fails you. Not because of who you are or what you might have done wrong, just for a sheer circumstance, the, the environment I was born into, right? It's easier to look away. Think about it. If you're passing a homeless person who is very visible on the street, right, It's easier to look away because it requires us to then invest an emotion into that individual or all of those individuals who might be couch surfing, who might be finding it tough to pay for their children's meals. It's easier to look away, right? And I see that come through into politics. The other thing I would say is that we don't have politicians that represent all of us whether it be um, people of colour, but most definitely lower-income people who have experienced hardcore disadvantage. We are not represented. There is no voice for us. And that comes through in the policy narrative. Think about the departments that are creating these policies. They have not experienced it. And a lived experience is what motivates us to make change. And it, it... It worries me, the evidence is there, the means to redress it are there. We just want to look away. It's easier.
3: I'd um, add a couple of things. I'm I'm going to go to the three questions, if I can, (laughs) quickly. In terms of inequality, I think the research is there. Mm. Um, it, It ought to be a lesson for us, again, in academia, about how we ensure our research gets translated and communicated and, and becomes increasingly impactful. And we don't tend to do that well all the time. We're good at talking with each other and we measure our own success in terms of our uh, journal articles, um, as opposed to how we communicate to a broader public. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, the second I would say is, be it climate change or inequality, et cetera, the great underpinning we don't have at this point, I believe in Australia to the extent we need, is strong ethics. Mm. Because if your ethics are there, those things will get sorted. Because they're ethical dilemmas; they're not political dile- dilemmas. They're ethical dilemmas. To your question about your levels of discomfort, I don't want to add to it, so I'm going to jump over <laughs> to, <laughs> over to New Start. Um, obviously, I. For the reasons Liz lays out, for the reasons our people are experiencing inequality in vastly disproportionate levels as measured by a whole range of measures, which I won't go into, um, clearly income, um, and a, be it a living wage or some sort of living income, is something we've got to keep talking about in Australia. I think one thing that is an obstacle to that is that... This that that then the unintended consequence of that is that people won't work look for work. Um, so in terms of the obligation on us as researchers, if that's not true, then we ought to the show the social it. wage. Yeah, which yeah. is a,
2: it, it's on the agenda in Europe. It's not on the agenda in Australia. Is it, Bob? So where are we at economically on that? And I'll come back to you on that.
6: Yeah. I want to ask them a question first, okay. Catherine. i want to disrupt what you're doing. <laughs> Since 1970, has worldwide inequality gone up or gone down? Who thinks it's gone up? In Australia since 1990, has inequality gone up? Or how many people think what it's gone up? What measure of inequality? Income, income inequality. Do people think it's gone up? Okay, so both of those things are not true. And, and, they're, and they're radically not true. So worldwide inequality has fallen dramatically from 1970. To 2019 um, and it's fallen because people in poor countries have gotten richer faster than mm. people in rich countries and it's been the most incredible economic phenomena that's happened on the globe in 1970 25% of the people in the world lived on less than a dollar a day today that's less than 3% we've had an incredible success right we, we, we stopped we, we changed the Millennium Development goals to the sustainable development mm. goals because we'd smashed the Millennium Development goals and now we need a new goals that were impossible to get to right the world bank raised the poverty rate from a dollar a day to 3 dollars a day because there weren't enough people who were poor anymore right we've had incredible success inequality in australia and i just looked at the webpage before i walked over here because i didn't want to misquote and if you look at the abs if you look at hilda it's flat there's no increase in inequality in australia um, so so i think so so first of all i just it is really important that we get the facts right because if we don't get the facts right we don't get the policies right Um, And we don't want to run around addressing problems we don't have. Now, inequality as it is may be too high or too low. That's a different question. But I'm disturbed by the fact that people think this. And today I was with Brendan Coates, who's the assistant director of the Grattan Institute. And I asked him this question. And he said, yeah, inequality is not going up. And I said, Brendan, how come every single person who looks at the data thinks that? And every single person who doesn't look at the data thinks the opposite, right? So, and this is a problem. And I suspect a lot of you are reading blog posts from the U.S. and thinking that what you're reading in the U.S. is true in Australia. Um, because, because in the U.S. inequality has gone up, but it's gone up a tiny bit, right? If I drew it for you on a graph, worldwide inequality would look like that, and U.S. inequality going up would be this tiny little thing at the bottom that you could barely discern, right? So we should be worried about the poor, and what we need to do is focus on opportunity, and we need to focus on the ability for people to move up and do better, so that single moms and people who start in disadvantage can get opportunities to succeed, and we need to heavily support people in doing that. And we need to do it not with these cookie cutter programs that treat people as unemployed or not unemployed, but treat them as complete people, right? And, and, and the problem is that we often, our agencies are very disparate. They look at people in these very monochromatic ways. They don't look at the complexity of real human beings. And so our, our programs to address disadvantage are just woefully inadequate. And we should be investing a lot more money in that. Mm. Okay,
2: we'll stop there for a minute. Great, we've got, yeah. So how about we go, we'll go one, two, three. We might just have the quick questions back to back. Then we'll <laughs> have to can I just respond to the can. Oh, can
6: yeah. we keep my response? Yeah, to just, quickly, yeah.
2: just yeah. very quickly. Let's if we
4: look at um, a survey of Australians um, through ANU poll that asks, mm. what are the biggest costs in terms of our welfare system? Majority of people say, "New start," but is it? No. What is it? 12. Age pension, minutes, right? Yeah. And I think until we correct that, um, uh, that perception will, will, will filter into politics and whether or not we create change. Great. Thanks, Liz. All right, we've got a question here,
2: then we've got a question there, and a question down here. Thanks.
0: Okay. Um, I want to suggest that Bob Carr perhaps uh, changed his ideas after <laughs> his disaster in New South Wales. Um, because he um, wrote or chaired the panel in one of the um, appendices of that population strategy discussion that you were talking about, in which he uh, came to the conclusion with his panel members that they should support the findings of two parliamentary inquiries into establishing a sustainability commission um, in 2001 and 2006. So we've got um, different university uh, disciplines uh, developing specific technical expertise, which is very important. We've got government departments that uh, change all the time in Australia, uh, that make it difficult to talk to them, and we've got establishments like the Institute for Public Policy at I'll Crawford. I just get you to come to the question. Yes. Uh, so the question is, how can academia? Good question. Um do its part in presenting United Front to um, government and politics about the seven crises of sustainability as identified in the Brunton Report via Stephen Dovers, another great professor at this university, of which population and climate change are but two. Great.
2: Okay, terrific. Good question. Up the back here, and then the next question here.
4: Um, so this question's about regional rural divide versus cities. And so what I want to ask is at the moment, you know, the government's been trying to do lots of different policies to encourage people to move to regional rural areas. Um, often in elections we see a lot of pork barrelling in certain marginal electorates. Um, but there's still some cities, that, sorry, some towns that aren't really growing um, and but at the same time the cities are over, you know, sort of reaching bursting point um, and it can be really hard for people to live and buy a house there. What do you think, you know, really needs to be done to really sort of try to actually address that divide? Because, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of people aren't moving is just because the infrastructure's not there, let alone, you know, the jobs, etc. Okay, good question. Thank you. And i here.
5: Why, why is it that some of the state governments actually seem to be able to show the leadership that we're not seeing at the federal level and it, within their own restrictions, you look at, say, Victoria and New South Wales infrastructure investment where they've got to rely on the Commonwealth. And as Mark would know, in the climate change area, the states are so far ahead of the Commonwealth, it's not a joke. They're showing the leadership and they're also um, reaping the rewards at the uh, ballot box.
2: Great, thanks for that. So three questions. I'll get to all the panel mm-hmm. to address to those questions as you wish. So we've got one talking about uh, the questions of the challenges to sustainability, of which climate change and population are but two. Um, the rural... City divide and uh, state governments potentially showing more action. Let's start with Mark and we'll move down the panel.
5: I'll, I'll just answer one of those. Um, the, the concept of a united academic front is, I thought, quite quaint.
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs> I agree. <laughs> But, 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 you know, highly desirable in an ideal world. Um, I, I think what, what you inevitably get is a range of different perspectives. Um, you've even heard that across the panel this evening as, as one example. But there are mechanisms where you can actually approach getting some sort of coherence within the science community. And, and the one I'm involved in is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, yeah. uh, where we essentially synthesise the science um, and we have very, very robust review processes to ensure that what we um, conclusions we come up to uh, are right. Um, the cost of that is some degree of conservatism. So it's it's not an adventurous um, entity and so so it's... Uh, people who criticise on that basis. But the reason why it works is because IPCC is actually owned by the governments, it's not owned by the scientists. And and that is the big difference, say, between the, the biodiversity equivalent of the IPCC. Um, it's not owned by the governments and basically governments ignore it. So, so you have to negotiate that institutional landscape where you have um, the academia, um, synthesising information, robust review processes, plus ownership by governments.
2: Mark,
0: thank you. Tony.
3: Um, in terms of the question in relation to rural and remote areas, uh, I think you partly answered your own question in terms of the importance of infrastructure. I think Bernard Salt and others have done studies to look at, well, what what needs to be in regional areas for people to want to go? And I'm not going to go through his list, um, but some will surprise you, including, you know, newspapers, television... Uh, things such as this. Um, With regard to the question in terms of, um, uh, oh, I should add, and then incentives, of course, incentives. If you look at, for example, in the education area with remote areas, um, um, the federal government, to its credit, have talked about wavering ex debts in terms of getting teachers out into remote areas. That said... Of course, we need more experienced and very um, very capable, our highest performing teachers out in these areas where educational gaps are quite sizable. In relation to your question um, with regard to the contrast between federal and state, um, it, it just strikes me that it's a question of stability, of leadership. Um, I don't know what's in the drinking water up on the hill, but... Um, <laughs> the last several years, it's been quite a toxic environment where... um, Of course, politics is going to have ambition, but um, it's just so unchecked now. It's just so overt. And you're right, Tony, Um, that not
2: being on the state level. It is different, isn't it? Right,
3: because um, let's look at them. In Victoria, you've had the benefit of uh, of Daniel Andrew, kind of safe, uh, stable in terms of New South Wales notwithstanding Barry's misfortune around the Bottle of Red. Um, uh, you, you, you didn't have knifing going on in, t- in terms of Mike Baird and then uh, Berejiklian. Um, so I don't know what's going on, but the, the states seem to have more settled mm. leadership at this point on both sides of politics. Um, Sorry, same in that. Queensland with uh, Palaszczuk. There's no kind of story every day mm. saying a challenger is coming. I don't know what's going on at the Thanks, federal great. level.
4: Great. Liz. So, in terms of um, academic consensus, um, I think the, we get caught up in this idea of, of needing a consensus. Think of the same-sex um, postal survey. There was this idea that we have this postal survey in order to gain um, public consensus. And I don't think that is always helpful, Um, That's an aside point. In terms of whether climate change is real and is being caused by humans, there is academic consensus on that. But as Mark says, in terms of what we need to do, there isn't consensus. Um, In terms of population, I'll give you an example. Um, There isn't consensus on that. The only available research in terms of immigration intake suggests, as I said, the sweet spot for permanent immigration is between 160,000 to 220,000 each year, right? Now, I was recently um, uh, very privileged to take part in uh, a session where a group of of very different academics, all demographers mostly, uh, and people who represented... um, uh, non, non-government non agencies as well, um, we had a consensus in the room about whether or not there should be a cut to immigration. We put that consensus forward to the government. They didn't listen. So consensus can be good. It can be elusive and difficult to gain. And even when you have consensus... It may it not be successful work, thanks, in creating impact. In terms of um, the regional remote divide, um, I'm going to look particularly through the lens of population uh, and we, we have um, across Australia's history been concerned with the idea of de- um, decentralisation and in, in many cases it's been unsuccessful over and over and over again. Why? Infrastructure is inadequate. And when I say infrastructure, what are the biggest issues? Education and employment. In terms of, in particular, migrants who are coming to Australia, they put themselves in a location (coughs) where they are going to maximise education (coughs) and employment. And we want that. Why? Because we want migrants to succeed because their success is our success, right? So, this idea, this, you know, I'm going to, I'm quite a fan of, of uh, the, this movie, this idea that if you build it, they will come. And if you don't know that reference, go home and Google and, and, and enjoy a very lovely movie. Uh, this idea that if you build it, they will come rings true. If we want people to see themselves in an area beyond the city limits, there must be education and employment opportunities. They're the biggest two. We need to have connectivity between, um, between these areas for people to be connected beyond the city limits.
2: Now, Liz, can I just jump in? Because I yep. think that's great, You know, really great points. And I think this is the richness, and I can say this because I don't belong to the ANU. The richness of this discussion, because you can't get this on television, the kind of expertise to connect their education and employment Mm. and to think about the rural divide in that way. So thank you for bringing that to the fore this evening because I think it really adds to people's understanding of that. So Mm. thanks, Liz. I'm just going to cut you off there just so we can get through (laughs) some because it is a great point, Bob.
6: Urbanisation, a huge issue all around the world, right? So the rural areas in rich countries are depopulating Urbanization has been a huge, uh, when the Growth Commission looked at what what are the characteristics of countries that have grown really rapidly in developing countries, urbanization has been a huge factor. Urbanization is hugely related to innovation. Mm-hmm. And people have a crazy desire to live in cities. Um, why don't we see small companies setting up in Mildura and Wagga Wagga and Albury and attracting people out there? I mean, that would be a very attractive lifestyle to me. People don't want it. They want the they want the lifestyle attractions of cities, and they want the dual opportunities for dual career families where they can work. It gives them a lot more flexibility. So, despite the crazy house prices, despite all the congestion, mm-hmm. we still see people moving in the cities. So there's a huge attraction, and that's a global phenomenon. That's not an mm-hmm. Australia phenomenon. Well, New Start. Can I just say one thing about New Start? Mm-hmm. Work is important for people. It's really important for their mental health. It's really important for their identity in our society where people, when you say, What do you do? you don't say, I study, you know, uh, Latin names of Australian flowers. You say, I work, um, and you say what your work is. Increasing New Start will have a negative disincentive on work. Um, and I think both parties actually take that disincentive seriously. And so while they're worried about, um, people who are on Start and the amount of money they get, they're actually worried about creating a negative work disincentive. And so it's not, I, I don't think you should necessarily view it as a malicious thing, right? And maybe we need to move to a kind of unemployment payment where we would have a relatively high level of unemployment replacement for people for a period of time, that then drops to a very low rate. So you'd give people time to get back on their feet, to have some time to search for the right kind of job but still create that push to get people to work. And I think
2: there's going to be such a range of views on on that whole idea of mm. New START and the economic argument, the, the social policy argument, and I think that's probably something for a whole panel of itself post-election to look into it. But we, we're nearly nearly out of time, but I did promise I'd go back to those two key issues. So in just a few minutes we've got left, looking at this is an election, two and a half weeks, people will be voting, on uh, climate policy, Mark, what are are we, where are we at? I mean, Labor is offering uh, more ambitious targets, but there's a question mark uh, over what it will cost. Um, And even if those targets were adopted, if if Labor got in, if those targets were adopted, is it actually going to be giving us what we need in terms of reducing CO2 emissions?
5: So labor, Labor's targets, the published ones, are a 45% reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2050. And that's consistent with the science, uh, which says that that's what you have to do if you want to get to 1.5 degrees or keep temperatures below 1.5. Um, so, so what they've got um, is this pretty much the same as the ACT target, except we go to net zero 2045 rather than 2050. Uh, and uh, the challenge, of course, is getting there. and. And as Liz and, and, and Bob have said, this is not going to be easy. Um, we have to think systematically. We have to think long-term uh, in, in how we're going to do this. It needs to include all of those things we've been talking about, you know, education, um, infrastructure, um, sort of employment prospects, um, you know, new technologies, etc. And at the moment we actually have, haven't have got that comprehensive view. If I look at the policies, um, Labor's policy is quite comprehensive in terms of emission reduction, even though it's not yet costed, um, but uh, but they miss half of the picture. They haven't got anything there about climate adaptation, you know, supporting ad- ad- adaptation to changing climate, dealing with the heat stress, dealing with the fires, dealing with the floods, Great Barrier Reef um, dam- damage, et cetera. Um, similarly with the Greens. So they've got a smaller set of policy activities um, but nothing on adaptation. Uh, and in terms of the coalition at the moment, their set of policies, which are essentially replicated um, in a smaller way in the, the new policy announcement, um, they're actually resulting in increases in greenhouse gas emissions, not reductions. And so clearly that's not working.
2: OK, well, so a lot to think about there. <coughs> Bob, tax is the other big policy. Tax cuts or no tax cuts? What are mm. your views?
6: So I think, I guess what I would say to you when you think about tax is, is first of all, I would encourage you to think about the tax and transfer system in its entirety. It's really important to think about both of those things. The other thing I would say is, and again, it's important to know the facts. Australia has a very progressive tax and transfer system when you put them together. Um, I think there's a tendency for people to focus on headline rates, which is a mistake. You got to focus on what people actually pay. So we have billions of dollars of tax exemptions and exceptions in our system and half of those go to the top 10% of the income distribution. Um, So my advice is when you're thinking about fairness, don't just think about the rates but think about all these cutouts that wealthy people use to avoid paying tax. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Great. Well, we are out of time. Thank you very much. Please thank the panel. I think you should all just stay and chat now because there's so much. (laughs) Thank you very much. We have two more election panels each Tuesday between now and the election. Please uh, register online. Hope to see you next week and the week after. Thank you very much. Thank you, panel.
3: Thank you, Catherine.